Well, welcome everyone. How are you all doing tonight? Good to see you tonight as we continue our study together. Uh, let's bow and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come and gather together. We thank you for the blessings that you have poured out on our lives. And Father, there are so many that uh, they are beyond what we could even count. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your love and your grace. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and study more about uh, how we can relate to you uh, as priests and how you desire for us to draw near to you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd bless this time of study. Pray that you'd bless our time of prayer to follow as well. And that in all that we do tonight, Father, as we fellowship and as we learn, as we pray that you would be glorified. And we pray this, Father, in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're continuing our study of Created to Draw Near, and we're moving into the next section of the book. The first section kind of brought us back to the beginning of God's plan in the Garden of Eden and how from the beginning God desired for his image bearers to be near him and to relate to him in perfect harmony and fellowship with him. But then we saw how that perfect harmony and fellowship was lost through the fall. And the fall created disharmony between God and man, but also between man and man, between people. And uh, this time tonight, we're moving into the next section of the book where we're moving forward in the biblical story. And we're going to pick up with the story of Israel a little bit later in Genesis, uh, some of the patriarchs and how God is continuing to draw people near to himself in grace. And so tonight we move into the second part, uh, discussing God's relationship with Israel. And uh, chapter 8 is uh, kind of leading us from Eden to the patriarchs and to especially to Jacob. And it's called Sanctuaries and Ladders. And he says one of the things that we can do as we read through the Bible to see this theme of priesthood is to see whenever God draws near to his people, whenever God comes close and meets with people. And so we have really from the beginning of the Bible, the concept of an altar, where at an altar, a sacrifice is made. And it could be uh, an animal blood sacrifice. It can be a food offering. Sometimes it's uh, just uh, burning of incense, but we have various altars and really from the beginning of the biblical story with uh, Cain and Abel. And from that point forward, we have the idea of an altar being central to the storyline of the Bible. And he suggests that an altar is really where heaven and earth come near, where, where we meet with God and we commune with him. And then we move forward in the story and we see examples of times when God speaks to people. And he speaks maybe through an audible voice, such as to Abraham or to Noah. Uh, we see times when God comes maybe through a, a vision uh, and maybe even visibly uh, presents himself, such as he does uh, with Abraham at times or even with Moses in the burning bush. But we see times when God comes close through uh, his word. And so when God speaks, he is present. And then uh, we also see times when God gives blessings and promises. Uh, we see with, uh, with Noah, 
after the flood that God gives blessings and promises. Uh, we see with Abraham that God blesses Abraham and gives him covenant promises. And he suggests that wherever we see God blessing people, there we see this priestly imagery because that is one of the functions of priests. As we read about priests in the Old Testament law, uh, we see that one of their functions is to bless God's people, to take God's grace and love and seek to bestow that on God's people in blessing. He says, when he blesses us, we will in turn pass that blessing to others. And a prized priestly job is to pronounce blessings. Uh, one of the benedictions that I use almost every Sunday, number six, 24 to 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. That's a priestly blessing that Aaron and his sons, the priests, were to bless the people of Israel with. And so blessing is one of the, the priestly roles. And then we also see the concept of holiness throughout all the Bible. And sometimes when we think of holiness, we think of uh, uh, righteous living, holy living, doing what God asks of us to do. And, and that is an element of holiness. So we have, for example, the word of God telling us, be holy as I am holy. And Peter connects that to the way that we live. So there is a concept of being righteous and, and living after the pattern of God's character that is a part of the idea of holiness. But even more core to the idea of holiness is the idea of something being sanctified, something being set apart for special use. And he suggests in this very con uh, concept of holiness that we have this idea of nearness, that, that God is setting aside uh, objects or people for himself uh, to draw near to him. So throughout scripture, we see people, places, special days, objects that God has brought close to himself that are reserved for special uh, function, for God's special purposes. And so holiness. Uh, then, of course, we see priests, and we'll get more into that as we move forward in the biblical story. But we see priests uh, such as the uh, priests in the line of Aaron and the Levites, but we're going to see tonight that the concept of priesthood goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. And we also see Job, who is many scholars believe that he is kind of a, a contemporary of the patriarchs, maybe along the time of Abraham, Isaac or Jacob, because we see him functioning like a father priest over his household. And so he will offer sacrifices on behalf of his family. He will uh, pray on behalf of his family. He'll pronounce blessings for his family. Uh, so we see, for example, in Job chapter one, verse five, that uh, Job's children had gotten together for a time of feasting. And it says that when the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. And so Job functioned as a priest, as a mediator for his family uh, to draw them close to God and to seek to atone for their transgressions. 
And then we see Abraham functioning as a priest for his family. Uh, We see God coming and calling Abraham, blessing him. Uh, We see Abraham functioning as a priest, uh, blessing others, blessing his family, setting up altars, making sacrifices to God. Abraham functions in this role of priest. In Genesis 12, 8, we see from the very beginning of God's call on his life, it says, from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so there's that concept of, of altar and of Abraham dwelling with God. And then we come to an interesting character in the book of Genesis, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is very interesting because he just kind of comes out of nowhere in the scriptures. Uh, Genesis 14, uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is taken captive in one of the, these ancient Near Eastern battles where kings were squabbling over rights and territory. And, and Lot got caught up in the midst of that and he was taken captive. Abraham, as his family comes to his rescue, Abraham brings his men, all the trained soldiers in his household, and they rescue Lot and rescue the people of Sodom and what the, these kings had taken. And then after that, we see Melchizedek, along with the king of Sodom, coming out to meet Abraham. And it says that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. So the Bible describes him as uh, the king of Salem, which uh, pretty much every commentator agrees that that is a reference to Jerusalem. And so ancient Jerusalem even before the time of Israel, before it became the capital of David's kingdom. This is ancient Jerusalem, before Abraham had even uh, possessed uh, the, the, uh, the promised land. Here is this man, Melchizedek, who is a king of this city, ancient Jerusalem. And the Bible describes him as a priest, a priest of the Most High God. And this is the first time in Scripture where that word, that title is used of an individual. It's Melchizedek, whose name means something like uh, my king is just or my king is righteous or uh, the righteous king, something along those lines. And so he is a worshiper of the one true God, the most high God. And he kind of comes out of nowhere. We don't have any explanation as to where he's, how he got on the scene, how he knows about the Lord, who his parents were, what his ancestry was. We really don't know anything about him other than this description of him being a king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. And it says that uh, he came out and he brought out bread and wine and pronounced a blessing on Abraham. And Abraham responded by giving to the Lord tithes through Melchizedek, giving to him. And so there's this concept of priesthood there of of Melchizedek pronouncing a blessing from God on Abraham. And 
in the book, I don't know if you had a chance to read this section, but he makes a comment, um, Ed Welch makes a comment in the chapter about Melchizedek that I thought was interesting. He said, as God's priest, Melchizedek shared in the status of God himself, which means that he was Jesus. Now, what I take him to mean there, if I understand him correctly, is that he believes that Melchizedek was a, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. And I'm going to disagree with him here. Um, there may be some who, who hold that view here tonight, uh, but I, I don't think that's the right view. I, I don't think that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. I think Melchizedek is a real historical individual. He was a king of Salem. And uh, for a few reasons, uh, one, so here's the question, was Melchizedek Jesus? I don't think he was for a few reasons. One, Melchizedek is the way he's described with specific names, specific locations, uh, very historical suggests that he was a historical figure, a normal man. Also, the way that the Hebrew text reads suggests that Melchizedek and the king of Sodom came and met Abraham simultaneously. And that these two individuals, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, who the king of Sodom was undoubtedly a historical figure. And it says that they both came out and met Abraham. Um, also, Hebrews 5 to 7 picks up on the theme of Melchizedek, but the way that the writer of Hebrews treats Melchizedek, he understands him to be a type of Christ, but not Christ himself. In fact, the word that's used there is in, in um, Hebrews chapter 7, I believe, verse 3, says that uh, Melchizedek was one like unto the son of God or resembled. And the way I take the writer of Hebrews, what he means there is that he is like a prefigurement or a type of Christ, uh, much like we could say that uh, David is a type of Christ and Jesus is the son of David. And that's how I see the writer of Hebrews using him. Uh, he's picking up on the fact that uh, Melchizedek is a priest before the line of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And he says, Jesus is a priest like that, who uh, is, um, doesn't, isn't connected to a particular genealogy. And also, um, really from early on, Jewish interpretation, uh, rabbinic interpretation, as well as early church interpretation, pretty much unanimous, unanimously understood Melchizedek to be a historical figure. And so... I'm going to slightly disagree with him on that. I don't think Melchizedek was Jesus. I think Melchizedek is a type, a, a prefigurement of Jesus, just like we could say Abraham or Moses or David is a type of Jesus. And uh, John Currid, in his commentary on Genesis, says this. He says, it has been suggested that he, speaking of Melchizedek, is the pre-incarnate Messiah, However, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews teaches against such an identification, Hebrews 7, 3, and 4. And that's where, I, where it says that Melchizedek was 
like unto or resembled the Son of God, which I take the writer of Hebrews to mean like a type of Jesus, kind of prefiguring him. But in Melchizedek, we do see the beginning of this concept of priesthood, of, of Melchizedek representing God before Abraham and receiving tithes from Abraham, but also pronouncing a blessing on Abraham, which both of those, the receiving of tithes and the pronouncing of blessing are both priestly functions that we see later on in the Old Testament law. And then we have Jacob, which is kind of where he's been heading in this whole chapter. And so we have Jacob who draw near, who draws near to God. And we have this story in Genesis 28, where Jacob is on the way to uh, Laban. He is running away from Esau because Jacob has stolen Esau's blessing and his birthright. Esau is angry. He's about to kill him. Rebekah says, you need to get out of here. Go to my brother Laban and live with him for a while. And so Jacob is on the run and he's going to Laban. And on the way, he has this dream. It says he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. And there's probably a lot that we could say about this dream and what it represents. But for the purposes of the study that we're doing, you can see in the imagery of the stairway or the ladder, a connection between heaven and earth, can't you? That, that there is this connection, this link, if you will, between God and Jacob. God is drawing near to him and he's pulling Jacob to him in relationship, in covenant. And then it says, uh, Jacob understood the significance of it because it says when he awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. He, he believed that the very presence of the Lord was there with him. And he says, and I was not aware of it. And then he says, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so he names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And he sets up an altar there. He says, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And he says, in that setting up of that stone, we see several things. One, it's like a little mini altar that he pours oil on, which is kind of an offering, an offering of incense or an offering of oil. Again, a, a priestly role, a priestly relationship. And also he says in that temple, we see the beginnings of a house, the house of God. And he makes this statement. He says, it was only a stone or two but that's how temples get started. 
This temple was the house of God, and from it was a ladder that traversed into heaven itself. And then he goes on to say that when the veil of heaven is pulled back for a moment, as it was with this ladder between God and Jacob, we see that much is happening. And God is resolute. He was making a way for his royal priests to be with him. He is never far. So moving on from Eden, we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God has drawn near to each of them and made specific promises to each of them. And in this particular vision with Jacob, we see a very uh, vivid picture of God's nearness, of his presence with Jacob to the, to the point where it's unmistakable to him. And he says, this is God's house. This is a sacred place. And then he takes the, the story a little bit more forward in the next chapter, in chapter nine, looking at another example of God drawing near to Jacob in his life. And interestingly enough, this other event is on the way back from Laban, back to go back to Esau. And so the first event where he met with God was running away from Esau, going to Laban. Now this is, uh, I believe, about 20 years later. And Jacob is coming back now, and he's coming back with all of his family, children, and now he's going back to Esau, but he's afraid because he hasn't seen Esau in all these years. The last time that he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. How is Esau going to receive him? So there's some fear or some doubt, some uncertainty there. And he makes a statement at the beginning of the chapter. He says, priests are the ones brought close to God. And he says, and Jacob was very close in this episode because literally God comes down in the form of a man and wrestles with Jacob. It's hard to get more near than that, isn't it? It says Jacob was near to God. And so here's this instance in Genesis 32. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And so what we have here is Jacob meeting God a second time. The first one was in a vision of this staircase or this ladder from earth to heaven. But this time God comes in a physical form, the form of the appearance of a man and wrestles with Jacob. And he says that in this moment in Jacob's life, he was alone. It was dark. It was at night. He was facing 
danger and the overwhelming sense of dread was would he and his family survive this meeting with Esau? What was going to happen the next day? But God comes to meet him and in God coming to meet him, to draw near to him, he says God is doing something that he often does and that is he responds to our fears. He responds to our fears and he assures his people of his presence. You can see that in many, many places throughout the storyline of the Bible, where in times of danger, in times of fear, in times of uncertainty, God comes either visibly, audibly, physically there with his people, but he comes and he reassures them. Sometimes he reassures them through the prophets, through the writings of scripture, but God comes and reassures his people of his presence. And so God comes to him and meets him. And one of the things that's amazing about this story that he draws out in the chapter is that God came to Jacob in a form of weakness. That in in this story of this man wrestling with Jacob, it almost looks like they're kind of equals in strength, just wrestling uh, for a long time and, and no one able to get the victory over the other. And if this is God in a physical form, then here I do think it is Christ in pre-incarnate form, a Christophany. And it is a prefigurement of uh, Jesus coming to earth in the form of a man. And so I think this is most likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And this gives us a glimpse of the incarnation in which Christ humbled himself and took on the weakness of humanity. So here is God in the form of a man wrestling with Jacob and humbling himself to the point of being uh, almost like an equal in terms of strength with Jacob. But yet we know in reality that he's not equal with Jacob. He's the almighty God, isn't he? He's the almighty God. And just to give Jacob a little reminder of that, he touches his hip. And in the touching of his hip, it's out of socket, it's out of place, and he limps on it the rest of his life. So just a reminder that this is, it might seem like these are equals, but they're not equals. God reveals his strength when he touches Jacob's hip. He says, those who know God accurately know that he is inclined to be near and to be near is to bless. And the story says that Jacob would not let the man go. He wrestled with him. He hung on to him. He would not let him go. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Why would Jacob say that? Why would he ask that unless he knew that this was some kind of divine being sent from God? He says, I want your blessing. And so God blesses him. And the way he blesses him is with the change of a name. He asks him, what is your name? He says, Jacob, which means deceiver, supplanter. 
But he says, your name is no longer Jacob. Now your name is Israel because you are a prevailer with God. He says, you have, you have struggled with men and with God and you have prevailed. And he finishes the chapter with this insight that I think is very helpful. He says, priests typically were models of decorum when they came near to the Lord. So we see this later. Priests had robes. They had certain rituals when they came near to God, very formal. But he says, in this instance, we have a time of desperation. He says, there were, however, especially desperate times during which they learned that they could not make life work through their own cunning. And at those times, desperation emboldened them. Like the impudent midnight caller who kept asking a neighbor for bread until he finally got out of bed and gave him bread, we have the option of holding on to the Lord even tighter as we remember his power and love. There is more than one way to be near and receive the blessing he promises. He says, Jacob, in holding on tight, saying, I'm not letting you go till you bless me, he says, is like us in prayer when we come continuing to ask, continuing to seek, continuing to knock, like that friend at midnight who kept knocking and knocking and would not go away until his friend got up and gave him bread. And he says, the relationship that we have with God as our father is so much closer than that, that if that man will get up at midnight and answer the door for his friend, how much more will God when we come seeking good from him? And so there are times when to draw near to God, we come just holding on because we need his blessing. We need his strength. But in Jacob, we see this theme continue to unfold of God coming near and also of Jacob holding on to and drawing near to God. And so uh, this is a theme that runs through scripture that God desires for us to be near him, to be near him in a priestly way, that, that we would relate to him as his holy people, and then to take on this priestly role to then take the blessing of God on our lives and to bless others with it. To, as a priest often is, a priest is a mediator between God and people. And so as his redeemed people, he's called us to be near him and then to extend his blessing, to extend his word, to extend his call to the world and seek to draw them near to God. And so I hope that as we continue to walk through and see different pictures of this theme in scripture, that we'll continue to be reminded of who we are as priests of God, a royal priesthood, Peter says, and and what that means for us in relationship to God and also in relationship to one another. Let's bow in prayer together. Father God, I thank you for the study and for the opportunity to learn more from your word about how you have from the very beginning uh, drawn near to your people and how you made us to be your image bearers so that we might relate to you. And Lord, even though we have fallen and we have rebelled against you, yet your plan 
of redemption goes on and you are continuing to draw us near through your grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And now, Lord, you have called us to be a priesthood, to draw near to you as you draw near to us and then to seek to live that out, live that role that we have, to live it out in the world and to be your representatives. And so, Father, I pray that you'd continue to remind us of uh, this precious uh, role, this precious position that you've given to us. And Lord, may we embrace that and seek to draw near to you. Father, thank you for uh, this time. And may we be blessed and may you be honored, Father. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.